From Corsica to Paris, Mont Saint-Michel to Mont Ventoux, up Alpe d'Huez twice and through the Pyrenees. Poignant and powerful, the 100th Tour had it all, but only one true pretender. Well, um, how are we all? Nice to see you both. Nice to see you both. Nice yeah, to see good. you, David. We're good. I mean, it's, good? it's been a week and we've accelerated a decade, which has been a bit a bit, a bit baffling for me, trying to keep uh, yeah, up on it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't well, keep yeah. up. Well, yeah, 2013, that's going to be the focus of this podcast. And Pete, you've decked out your entire room in like, well, d talk <laughs> us through it because obviously it's a podcast. I mean, it took me probably five minutes, but I quickly went up into the attic to see if I could find a dossard, which I couldn't find, but I found three time trial numbers, two jerseys, one of which I crashed in. I found my old bike, which I raced up Alpe d'Huez on. There's already the Alpe d'Huez jersey there, um, which is always there. And <laughs> that's pretty much what I, yeah, mustered up for this evening. Do you know what? I did a bit of, because I've been doing a bit of audio research, trying to dig out some little bits and pieces of sort of interviews from back in the day in 2013. And actually, randomly, the algorithm threw up France Television, this is on YouTube, France Television's commentary from your win on Alpe d'Huez, Pete, from a few years later. And um, yeah. I, I don't know if it's sort of commentary that I think you should hear, really, because they were very focused on how Ben Swift was closing on you. <laughs> 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 he had it in I control like, I can't remember that but there was Marion Roos and everyone and Jalabert were giving it the whole hang on hang on look at Swift look at Swift he's got a sprint like that but yeah but Ned have you never done that in commentary before where you've tried to you know make something out of a situation nothing. that's probably yeah nothing <laughs> uh, no disrespect to Swift obviously. No, obviously I was I was a little bit worried with 900 metres to go mm. when I started to cram but anyway this is 2013 not 2013 17 mm. so it, is, it is it is it is it is 2013 and we're going to start we're going to start by um hearing a little clip that i managed to find of pete kenyuk who turned 24 before the tour de france so i think i got that wrong last last week when we were talking about you being 13 in 2003 i think you were actually 14 in july yeah but it depends in july, in july. yeah i was yeah, so just. so i think you were 24 when you went mm -hmm. to the 2013 Tour de France. It was your debut Tour de France, um, and I, this is a this is a little interview that you did on Sky, <laughs> Team Sky's official sort of like YouTube channel or website thing. So there's some absolutely horrendous music behind it, for which I can only apologise. But I've robbed their intellectual property, and uh, and here it is. Two thousand twelve was great with the track and that, but I feel like I've missed out on a whole road season. So for me, a lot of the guys who have maybe had a long season last year, a bit like all oh, the first races, not far away. But for me, it's like I just can't wait, can't wait for a man just to get back into the season again and sort of just become a road rider again and get into it, get stuck into it. It's going to be a good year, I think. So Pete, you had high hopes for twenty thirteen. You were raring to go. You'd 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 done your twenty twelve track year, hadn't you? Yeah. It was all was about that, the road from yeah. then on. Go on, what are you saying? Was 2012 always going to be? Was that ever... Was that, had that been established for a long, long time, like years and years before, that you would always be like on the track in 2012 and part of that programme? Not really. Um, I mean, there's loads that's been publicised about 
the book that I had with the 2012 Olympics and the aim and that was when I was 16 but as far as team pursuit goes that was probably two years prior to 2012 where I really you know completely focused on that goal and then that was for me it was like okay two years completely on the track everything I do on the road supports that and then whether I win or lose then I follow my career on the road got you that was it really yeah yeah David, what was your where was your head in twenty thir- the beginning of twenty thirteen? Um, I think beginning of twenty thirteen, I was thirty six. Um, I knew I was kind of I was losing the the joie de vivre of cycling, and and I still had in my head. I think at the beginning of twenty thirteen, at the end of twenty twelve. I think twenty twelve was my final year of kind of being fully invested. But I, 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 then I still thought I could go till I was 40, which would have taken me to 2017. And coming into 2013, I was like, oh, no, I don't think I can do this much longer. And That's what I thought as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I just fell off a cliff. That was the first winter where I couldn't really train. I literally did fall off a cliff. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's where yeah. my head was at in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Very good, very good. Um, um, well, listen, 2013, other things happened apart from the Tour de France. So I've wrapped up a few in a kind of rock and roll years sort of way. We had a bit of difficulty with the first song that I chose that we decided not to use for various reasons I'm not going to go into here. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's, uh, here's, here's uh, in a rock and roll years, kind of a style. Here's what else went on in 2013. Feeling my way through the darkness Guided by a beaten heart I can't tell where the journey will end, but I know where to start. The racers of the Tour de France, Peter, David included, and the entourage of the race of whom I was one, assembled on the island of Corsica, the birthplace of Napoleon, and wound its way first through the Pyrenees before jumping up to Brittany, shooting back down to the Alps, and coming to its conclusion as ever in Paris on July the 21st, when Wake Me Up by Avicii reached number one. It was the sound of a summer which saw Andy Murray finally fulfil his destiny by becoming the first British man to claim the Wimbledon tennis title since 1936, the year when incidentally the Belgian Sylvain Maas won the Tour de France. 2013 saw the deaths of two titanic political figures, Margaret Thatcher and Nelson Mandela, who had met one another in 1990 shortly after Mandela's release from prison, Thatcher commenting that she was rather disappointed in Mr Mandela at the time, who she seemed to think had a rather closed mind. Alex Ferguson stepped down after 26 years in charge of Manchester United, a time in which he'd won the league 13 times, the Champions League twice, the FA Cup five times and the League Cup on four occasions. Hundreds of people were injured in the Chelyabinsk region of Russia when a meteor struck Earth, though amazingly no one was killed. The Jimmy Savile report was published, detailing all his abusive crimes. Oscar Pistorius was charged with the murder of his girlfriend Riva Steenkamp. Same-sex marriage was passed into UK law in 2013, and Prince George was born to Prince William and Kate Middleton. Mark Cavendish won the British Road Race Championship in Glasgow with David Miller in third and Peter Kenyuk in fourth. But I don't have any plans. Wish that I could stay forever this young. And 
Yeah, Mark Cavendish was the so a week a week the weekend before you guys landed in Corsica for the for the Tour de France. You all now before we get to the Tour de France, that was an epic race, wasn't it? The the World Championships in Glasgow where you so the, the nationals. There was a corset of nationals. Sorry, what <laughs> did I just say? The worlds. Yeah, it will oh, be the worlds. The world. It will Sorry. be the worlds this year, Ned. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. where my confusion arose. Yeah. Stannard, Cavendish, Kenyuk, Miller. A legendary breakaway on the streets of Glasgow, wasn't it? Yeah. It was legendary, but I can give a bit of background on this because obviously, as we can see here, Pete was dressed just just like that in twenty thirteen. And yeah, totally team, skied up. team Sky had an enormous <laughs> Before team and there. after the race, yeah. And I was there and I was kind of on my own and, and Mark was there on his own and Alex Dowsett was there on his own and we kind of did this. He's, he's always on his own. He's always on his own, yeah. He's a time traveler. But we we had our we decided to do a sort of a little mafia, which was we we're, we're not going to be able to beat Team Sky, so us world tour indiv- like solo riders are going to have to be a team. So we all met in a hotel room the night before the race and said, "Look, we're going to be a team, and we're going to look after each other, and whoever wins." Uh, and I think we, we did say, and I'll be fully kind of honest about this because this is how it works. It was like two or three thousand euros. Whoever wins kind of will give that to the three guys we're working with. And kind of, and it was just a kind of, it was our team kind of like we did a little kitty and said, okay, if you win, you're going to pay all of us this. If I win, I'll pay all of you this. So we became this independent world tour team against Team Sky. But very quickly, it just became me and Mark against Team Sky. <laughs> What's interesting about that is, though, for the Nationals, as far as I, I was concerned, I was never part of a team. Like, Oh, I yeah, you were rebellious, I remember The one that. race of the year where I am on my own and I'm not given anyone a yard, you know? Yeah, I was That's on, interesting. Yeah. It was an amazingly hard course. I was on a mission. I even had an aero Wasn't helmet it? and kind of like a he- helmet oh, with yeah. a visor on it, full aero gear. I was on a, and me and Mark just like wingmanned each other and kind of, and we, we fully kind of buddied up. And it was against Pete and Ian Stannard. Everyone else, all the rest of the team dropped out. It was like Ian and Pete against me and Cav, basically. It was brilliant. I- I remember I was presenting the coverage on the telly that year and so but I couldn't obviously watch it live so I kind of got along the course and I was trying to trying to figure out what was going on in the race. Did you have Cavendish on the ropes at any point because obviously the mission was to try and drop Mark, wasn't it? Get rid of him somehow. No. Otherwise he was going to win. Never was he on ever the in ropes. trouble. No. Never. Like uh, same in Lincoln, never on the ropes. He's just uh, That's annoying. Yeah. It's annoying because there's so many times where you feel like you can get him on the ropes but more often than not in the Nationals he just becomes this and he might argue the case that he's always this version of himself but I know he's not because I've seen him in training he becomes this engine of mm. a of a machine and like didn't have him on the ropes once there not even once that I think he's breakable and it's the same in Lincoln yeah. wow yeah, yeah. He, was, yeah. he was impressive that's for sure yeah. Well, we'll come, we'll, come on, we'll come on to talk about Cav. National champion now, national champion then, heading to Corsica for the beginning of the, um, for the, beginning of the Tour de France. Now, Pete, can, can you remember anything about the race? Like, can you remember arriving in Corsica? Can you remember what the vibe was? Can you remember what the mood in the team was? With the confidence in Froome, bits and, like that? Were you pretty sure you were going to win it? I can remember absolutely everything. Quite the contrast from 2003 where... You know, I could barely scrape together memories. 
from when I was 14, 13. But it, that particular tour, yeah, I can remember. I can even remember flying there because I think it was Cav or... He was flying on a private jet there. And Rod convinced me and Stanard it'd be good to chip in to go with Cav, basically, to make the travel easier. Blah, 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 blah. And then it it turned out it just wasn't. We had to stop <laughs> half. We had to we had to stop halfway there for Wasn't some big enough plane. air traffic scenario. All this um, had to sit on a plane with Cav for four hours, directly opposite him, like intensely talking to me. Uh, and oh, of course, I arrived sit, in Corsica absolutely wrecked. <laughs> you sit opposite people in private planes, don't you? I'd forgotten that. It's like sitting in uh, a London no, especially taxi. these like low budget private yeah. planes where you can barely fit four people in, and they 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 give you this like little square plate of grapes and square blocks of cheese, you know. Um, oh, and yeah, so that was I remember. I honestly remember it really, really vividly traveling there, and the whole race for that matter. I remember the we arrived in Corsica. We did a team time trial day on because we had new. Uh, TT bikes, the the Belide, I think the new Belide was out um, because the f- team time trial was on stage five in Nice. Stage four, yeah. Stage, yep. stage four, sorry. So we already That's did what? a time trial effort together in Corsica. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the Gero took the jersey, didn't he? Well, we got a few, yeah. The first one, the first one went to Marcel Kittel, who we're going to hear from later in the pod. All right, because he he very he's very kindly contributed to this pod. But of course, everyone remembers stage one for the Orica. The Orica bus crashing into the finish line. How do you? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I and the huge be... crash that took G out, and the huge crash that took Geraint Thomas out, and that's when he broke his pelvis, right? It was Jan Backland's got the first yellow jersey. That was the no, s- no, it was the second. Marcel no. could took the end. Jan Backland's got you. Yeah, no. yeah. correct, correct. Mm. Oh, yeah. then, oh, Simon. Gerrans took yeah. it afterwards. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got yeah. Gero was like, we're going to hear from Simon Gerrans as well. Mm. Cornucopia of, uh, the, but Marcel Kittel t- won the first sprint. So David I rem- Miller finished fourth. Yeah. So I remember that stage because um, we were coming in <laughs> and it turned into chaos with like twenty five k's to go or thirty k's to go on the race radio. It was uh, their neutralizing stage. The finish is going to be at ten k's to go, and it was like what. Uh, mm. and it, it sounded like we heard vague vague news they weren't giving reasoning uh, because no one knew until it came across the team cars and th- we got all these rumours that the finish line was going to be at 10k's to go and I was like what? and that was because the, <laughs> the Greenish bus was stuck under the finish line at the time and then so <laughs> what happened was certain teams were saying this and then certain in classic professional cycling st- some were just striking and saying bah the stage is over. <laughs> I'm not getting involved in this. It's, but obviously some of the sprinter teams were still interested. And then we came through 10Ks. You could see people peeling off and it's not caring. And it was like, well, no, that's not the finish line. Then, the, then it was like, no, everything's back to normal. The finish will be at the finish. <laughs> and there'd been a did crash. Did people sprint? Did David, well, the, did people sprint for 10K? Like, was there well, a mini, Yeah, there was, you know? a bit, there was a bit of a wind. There was, there was a crash around there, around 10Ks. Uh, it then split I just up. remember... And I don't know if you do, but I don't know if I remember because I was on obviously on the left of Team Sky, mm. all on the line. And um, for about 10 kilometres up till about 10, 11k to go where you turn right and then Geraint Thomas's crash was about 3 to 4k afterwards for about 6k, 5k to go maybe. Mm. Maybe a bit less, I don't know. But there was these like bollards that were probably, I don't know, maybe a foot off the ground, a little bit less. They were separated by 
out of 30 to 40 centimetres, you know. So there was a few, and the only way to move up, because the road was completely blocked, was either to bunny hop them or try and like flip between them. And it was just manic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting people just desperate to move up because the road was completely blocked. It was just, yeah. and this was my first Tour de France. Remember, David? Yeah, yeah, I know. So I was just nuts. like, this. Is oh yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was absolutely insane. And I just, I don't know who was on my team. I don't know if Tyler Farrow was on there and Julian Dean. I'll, I'll have a look for you, David. But anyway, what do you remember <laughs> about it? <laughs> uh, so just coming coming up, there was the chaos, and, and the reason I asked was because normally we had a sprinter on our team. And I wasn't... You didn't, to, by the way. We you, didn't. You didn't. No sprinter. Oh, no well, sprinter. No. Well, that's why I kind of was up for it. So I had nothing else to do. And so I sort of saw it starting to open up and I was near the front and a gap opened up and I squeezed through and I found myself at the top five, in the top five guys going for the line. And I was like, oh, go for it. And I got fourth. I mean, completely anomalous, but just pure serendipity kind of in timing and having nothing else to do on the first stage of the Tour de France. And then it was only then afterwards kind of came through and I was like, hang on a second. I'm, fifth. <laughs> I, I'm fourth and it's, it's climbs tomorrow. I could be in yellow tomorrow. But actually, I didn't even think like that. And our team didn't even think about it. So that's how day one ended for me. I was like, Whoa. Yeah, you're absolutely right, because um, only stage one, I, as far as I remember, it kind of went, broadly speaking, mostly along the coast, didn't it? Because Corsica is just mm. a great big lumpy rock. It's just Couple really mountainous. Couple climbs early on, rollers. Was it? Yeah, yeah. and then afterwards it but hit the coast and it flattened about. out. So yeah. stage two stage two did, like, could had the potential to be very selective, or at least a bit selective. A big mm -hmm. opportunity for you, David. You gave an interview to some weird American network who I've literally robbed, um, you know, their, their intellectual property <laughs> uh, off YouTube. Yeah. Um, I don't know who the reporter is. I'm sorry, I should credit them, but I don't know who it is. But he, he did an interview with you, David, and this is what you had to say about your tactics going into stage two and the opportunity potentially to take the yellow jersey. It's going to be an opportunistic ride, like yesterday. I mean, yesterday was opportunistic. So you've got to just kind of be a bit dynamic and see how the race unfolds. But our strategy is fairly unchanged, to be honest. And it's all bonus, really. So it was like you were assuming that Alexander Kristoff was all in and like his team. God knows who he was racing for back then. I can't think. But... Um, but uh, yeah, you thought it was all going to be about Kristoff's team. And in fact, ah, with hindsight... Mm. Well, you know, so it was, it was, had you, had you fallen off the cliff, David? No, were, not yet. Or you were like halfway so, off so it? So what was really weird about this, down? what is really weird about this in hindsight and kind of even that evening after the stage where we'll get to of this day stage, I'd so switched to this domestic mentality by 2013. I know that, what you mean. That I'd not even kind of gone into the team meeting and said, guys, you know that I can be in yellow tonight. Can we dedicate resources to this? I was still there for Christian mm -hmm. Vanderveld, Ryder Hesjedal, and kind of was like, oh, that's nice. I found myself in this position. And then as the stage went on, Francis Deja ripped it up, and I was yellow on the road with 40Ks to go. And indisputable. I just had to make sure I, I beat Daryl Impey uh, at the finish line so that he didn't get any kind of bonus seconds on me because he was the only one that was in the group that had passed over that was close. It was points, not, not times. And I, I still remember this coming off this and realizing this. And I didn't even go on the radio. I think I did a bit later. I was like, oh my God, I'm I'm virtual yellow in the Tour de France now. And yep. and I was a completely different person to what I'd been in the past. I was so, so it's like you you'd, yeah, you'd walked up to the top of the cliff. Yeah. Hadn't actually gone hadn't, off it hadn't, yet. hadn't gone off it yet. I was so humble 
and kind of I was like, I didn't want to even ask my team. I didn't want to say on the radio, hey guys, I'm on yellow. I'm in yellow. Can everyone get up here around me now? And we got it. We can control this race if we just if we just ride this to the finish line now. Well, I'll be this is quite. This is quite the contrast from the last podcast where we yeah. talked about 2003 and you're marching your general manager over to yeah. the Beyonce bus to show them yeah. their bikes. But and David, this 20 is years. Completely yeah. opposite, isn't it? But David, this is, this is, you've been yeah. fully Garmined by now, haven't you? Yeah. So this was the whole Garmin slightly I, lame. I institutionalised myself. I uh, laid back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. No, um, but you know what was the loveliest thing? And I still remember we were coming off the, that climate. FDJ had ripped it up, so it was just it was me and yellow now. By the um, way, no no, so I was I was curious. I thought to myself, who the hell were FTJ riding for? And I've just checked the start list, and it was Nasser Buani, who must uh, have yeah. been like eighteen yeah. or something at the time. Like, really well, they were, they were, they were protecting Thibaut Pino as well because they wanted to make sure that they got rid of all the sprinters. So it was off the very steep climb, ten fifteen uh, okay. k's to go. Very they steep. To, yeah, they, they wanted to make sure that it, they'd removed all the chaos of all the sprinters. Oh, I see. So okay, quite, so Buani got shelled out. All the sprinters. It was got, quite got, clever. Yeah, they, were it was, they, were, okay. they were protecting Thibaut Pino for GC. Um, but I was coming down the set and Ryder, who was my friend, he, did, he came up to me and he was like, Dave. Came up to me as well. He, he <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, he knocked you off. Yeah, yeah. come to that. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, Dave, Dave, you're in yellow. And I was like, yeah. He's like, you did a bottle? And I was like, yeah, I do need a bottle. He's like, here, have a bottle. And then he was like, I'll stay with you. And he, he just stayed with me then. And then and then it was only with 15, 10Ks to go that I was like, guys, I'm in yellow. Can we ride? Because that was when the move went that then ended up winning. We came over the top of that oh. steep climb and it had gone and no, none of my team were doing anything. And that's when I came on the radio to Charlie, Charlie Wigelius in the car and said, Charlie, we got to ride. Please, can we, can we get the team to ride for me? I literally begged on the team radio. This is crazy. This and it was like, I was, in, I was in yellow in the Tour de France and you would have the, been and, and Charlie what, didn't Charlie didn't do thing, anything in the would, car and I didn't Charlie didn't do anything in the car you would have been in that move though you would have been yeah, in that I know move exactly 10 years earlier yeah well, what, five. What, uh, yeah. what a move it was as well when it went yeah. Like, yeah. and the, re the only reason I know that is because I'd completely forgotten but we David you this morning or earlier about lunchtime today mm. you messaged Jan Bakalans who ended up winning mm. the stage and taking the jersey um, yeah. who was a rider no one had heard of back then I think respectfully you know yeah. Ra Radio Shack he was like the commentator's nightmare because this move went over the hill and um, it was full of hitters Juan mm. Antonio Fletcher Sylvan Chavanel a um, couple of other guys and there was one Radio Shack guy who everyone ignored and of course it was the Radio Shack guy who everyone ignored who ended up winning the stage anyway you pestered Jan to say hey come and tell us what happened mm. and I hadn't realised that you'd already messaged him and I rang him about five o'clock this afternoon when he was putting he was trying to put his kids to bed <laughs> and he goes yeah David's already been on to me about this but anyway he very kindly uh, sent us this message and g gave us this account of his well, his version of events and what I mean it's a, the biggest moment in his racing career ever. Hi, David and Ned. Um, I take you back to my stage win in the Tour uh, of 2013. Um, of course, very good memories for me. It was my first um, Tour de France. Uh, the start was on the Isle of Corsica, a very beautiful venue for this uh, for this start. Um, not too many people, um, maybe a bit of a strange atmosphere because yeah the the, the crowds were limited uh, i would see in later uh, um to the france start there would, could be much more um people alongside the road 
um, but I liked it a lot on Corsica. Um, it's uh, not surprising that um, I liked it a lot because I had a good, my biggest success of my career there. I won the second stage. Um, we got into a breakaway in the finale um, with me, Fletcher, Chavanel, um, Fulsang, and a rider of Escaltel. Um, yeah, and uh, we we could. Uh, sneak out of the peloton just after a hard four category hill at about 10 kilometer uh, from the finish line and um, yeah we cooperated well uh, the peloton was never far off the peloton was very reduced because halfway through the stage um, Francis de Jeu I, I remember they made a selection um, out of uh, fear that Thibaut Pinot um, would lose time in the more technical descent um, so we were uh, we had a reduced bunch um, chasing us. Uh, Sagan was there, he was the big favorite and of course David was there, he could take the yellow jersey, he had a good uh, placement uh, the day before. Um, and it looked like uh, in the final kilometers the peloton uh, would catch us back, but uh, under the red kite I took my pull and the other, the other guys hesitated and granted me 10 meters of advantage and I saw an opportunity in this. So. Uh, I uh, I went for it with one kilometer to go and could just hold off the peloton. The other guys were swamped and I uh, finished with one second um, in front of the bunch, which also granted me the yellow jersey, which I lost uh, two days later in the team time trial in Nice. Um, so there we go. So Jan Bakalantz, who everyone singularly failed to identify, um, is in yellow. Do you want one little one little footnote on that story just before we go? When that break was away please, and please because do. obviously it was only one second that... Jan Backlands won, and which separated me from the yellow jersey. But in the final 5Ks coming in, the peloton was in full flight, and it got slowed down by three or four seconds. Do you know by what? A Scottish terrier that ran across the road in Corsica, oh. and the whole peloton slammed on its brakes. Wow. And, and that was the difference. Kind of that was the difference. lost all our momentum. And I always find that the most... That was different. I always found that the most beautiful irony that in Corsica it was a <laughs> Scottish terrier that prevented, like, ended up slowing down the peloton. Kind of just that little See, which you need to win. I'm yeah. feeling really bad now, David, because we obviously we wanted to do the 2003 Tour de France, and like that was all about you not getting the yellow jersey mm. by a fraction of a second. And then we had this idea that we do the 20. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do this Tour de France was because not because it was a particularly thrilling race. I mean, the margin of victory was enormous, but. Really significantly, Pete, it was your first. Yeah. And David, you didn't know it at the time. It was your last, mm. which is kind of nuts. It's, I, I don't know why nuts. we've only just thought of that. But, um, it, but I feel bad now for dwelling on two moments in the Tour de France where you've been denied the yellow oh, jersey. Uh, no, don't worry. There's, there's tons of races where I've had those moments. So it's fine. It's a story of his life. <laughs> yeah, it's a story of my life. <laughs> As Christian Vanderfoy Christian used to call me God's joke. Did he? <laughs> God's yeah. joke. God's joke. <laughs> Getting <laughs> so close, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, stage stage three. We're going to rattle on. We're not going to do them all in the, quite this slowly. But um, yeah. stage three had an even more selective climb. I had a proper climb, didn't it, towards the towards the finish? That all the sprinters got shelled out, and it's a relatively small group that got to the line together. And Simon Gerrans, led out by Daryl Limpy, out sprinted Peter Sagan. Yeah, that I mean, was amazing. But let's. Uh, Peter Sagan was still relatively early in his career, 
but it was still yep. an um a nuts performance and i think that's credit to green edge and the kind of how they were operating in that tour uh it was phenomenal yeah was it, it hot that day as well it was hot it's very hell. hot very hot yeah mm, let's hear let's hear hot. from gero let's hear from gero because he messaged me um this morning yeah. got them all today haven't we yeah hi ned uh got your message there um mate it's getting a little bit late here in australia but um but happy to try and help you out for your podcast so um yeah 2013 tour de france it feels like a lifetime ago more than the, the 10 years that you, that you said but uh yeah an eventful tour de france for myself and and orica green edge was my team that i was racing for at the time um all kicking off on on stage one where our team bus got caught under the gantry on the finish line. So yeah, really, really made the headlines for the team and um, and stayed there for the next few days. Stage two, uh, select bunch sprint, I was leading out Darryl Limpy, but um, Jan Buckland's just snuck away off the front in the final and took the stage win in the jersey. Stage three, uh, a stage where I was given leadership of the team. It's a stage that we reconned a couple of weeks before the Tour de France, so we knew what we were in for. And it worked out perfectly for the team. We placed Holman Clark in the breakaway. And then it was obviously a reduced brunt sprint into um, uh, Carvey there. And Daryl led me out for the for the sprint. Um, I think there was, you know, about half the peloton left. And I managed to, to time it just right, holding off Peter Sagan and, and taking the win. And that created a fantastic momentum for, for the team because the next day we transferred over to Nice and we won the team's time trial, which, which put me in the yellow jersey for the next couple of days and then handed it over to Daryl for the next couple of days after that. So, yeah, definitely a, a real highlight of, of my career and um, a Tour de France I'll never forget. So there's, uh, there's Simon Gerrans and we leave, we leave Corsica behind us now. Just a little footnote, that evening, <laughs> that evening, and you'll be able, now, Pete and David, you'll be able to identify with this because you understand the chagrins of the travelling media circus. But while you lot all got on your aeroplanes and flew over to Nice, the, all of the rest of us in our vehicles had to go to some port in, um, I don't know where it was actually, and, and get on board the same ferry that had oh, been chartered by ASO. I hearing about this. Yeah, and we didn't leave until about eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock at night. The ferry, and it's only a relatively short crossing. I think it only takes an hour and a half or two hours to to cross from um, Corsica to Nice. So we thought, oh, they'll just like let us stay in our cabins for a little bit, won't they? And yeah. they just they just didn't. They just shelled us out at like three o'clock in the morning. They was, kicked us out. It was nuts. <laughs> I remember because when <laughs> we got savage. obviously we were all complaining about how late we got to the hotels. And then we were getting all messages from also because I think a lot of the team staff were going through the same situation. Yeah, the team, yeah, yeah. like mechanics and yeah, there were there were yeah, yeah there were the mechanics and, and all the they all the team vehicles were on the same car and the same ferry. Yeah, brutal. Yeah, so but we no. were dumped out into Nice in the middle of the night basically, and nothing was open, and we were just staggering around like the night the night of the living dead. Everyone with the accreditation just kind of like mercifully, it was a really warm evening. But like by the time the race started in the afternoon, we were all just totally jet lagged. We we're just falling asleep on a, on the on the spot. Team time trial stage four. Yeah, so uh, I came into that because at that point Garmin was kind of the number one team time trial score, kind of in the pro peloton, and we were relatively confident. But Green Edge were coming up and they just destroyed it. And so I, I kind of remember going into that. It was time really tra- close, actually. 
it was close with you guys. The top was three. It? No, it was yeah. with Ethics. It was, it was Ethics, Ethics Quick was Step, it? wasn't it? I think. It was they said they broke the record. I don't 59 think there was much between. Yeah, they broke the record for Team Time Trial 59Ks an hour, I think. For like it was the world, was the world time, world tour de France pro cycling world tour record. Ah, oh, Pete, it. yeah, David, you're right. Sky yeah. did a good job. Yeah. Sky did a really good job. Yeah, uh, yeah. you were three seconds off, um, Orica Greenage. And yeah, I remember it being close. Yeah, mm. just one second to Omega Pharma quick step in second, and mm. yeah, that was one of the best team time trials from Sky. Kind yeah. of ever at the ever. Tour de France, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah I remember being f- absolutely raging across the line because um, <laughs> David Davide. Oh, I can't remember his second name now. Just One of your remember. teammates. Yeah, uh, David Lopez. David Lopez. Lopez. Sorry. Yeah, but um, he. Oh, lovely guy. But he sat on the back for ninety percent of it, and then did a turn with like eight hundred meters to go. The almost dropped everyone oh that old and i was finishing thinking do you know that whole team pursuit philosophy where it's maintaining speed and yeah yeah blah blah blah, blah. i remember thinking if you had that much of a kilometer to go well you could have done you could have helped us over the course yeah. of however long you know makes a difference mm. yeah but there you go. i've let that's, it go now obviously. that's good <laughs> yeah so that was it. That Garant was my, Thomas, my, Garant Thomas yeah. was suffering a bit there. He, he was the only rider you dropped, I think. He came in... Is that yeah. possible? He came in 45 seconds down because and also the broken pelvis. Oh, broken yeah, pelvis. And also the the Ironman specialist, um, Cameron Worth, he finished outside the time limit because of a crash as well, I think. Mm, that's right. And also, yeah. you know who else finished that time limit? With Ted King. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I don't know why. Because he was on liquid gas and he just couldn't go fast enough, but it became this kind of polemic. So both of them did. American media thing that so like, turn in. They had two outside the time limit. I think so. Well, I know Ted sure King's like. So I remember. I remember calling yeah. up like the director of the tour trying to get him back in because his dad was there and there was some story about his dad being sick and. There was just. I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. not laughing at that, but I'm laughing at the fact that you're calling up the race director to try and. I know, I had a terrible di- day, and I was like, and Ted messaged me and said, you know, the, can you see if oh. you can get me back in and kind of. Yeah. And well, I really, 2003, possibly Ted, but it's 2013. <laughs> yeah, now. yeah, I got no, I got no collateral now. I can't, can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even care if I'm about to take the yellow jersey, Ted. I'm sorry. Yeah. What about me? Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> so that was that day. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on. Um, the the next day. So there's a couple of stages then before you get to the Pyrenees, where you're rattling across the um the south of France. The couple of sprints. Cavendish gets stage five ahead of Edouard Bossenhagen, okay. and then the next day Andre Greipel. And there's, there's so now by now there've been three bona fide sprints. Kittles won one, Cavs won one, and Andre Greipel's won one. And that so was it. This, those those this three was the tour of, where Sagan implemented the the. This was the first year where they implemented the tactics of, you know, dropping calf before the sprint, basically. Because I remember so many stages. I don't mm. know if you do, David. Yeah. Where they lit it up on the climbs. Just to you know, eliminate him. Third or fourth yeah. category climbs. And the whole liquor... Was it liquor gas? It must have been. It was liquor gas. Yeah, it was. It was liquor gas. Yeah, they yeah, just, yeah, they yeah. just yeah, light it up, basically. Even if it was yeah. like 50, 60, 70 kilometers to go. And then that would yeah. be it. And it was yeah. great from a GC point of view because... Uh, when just you're simplified team, things it was so relaxed it's yeah just, yeah yeah completely simplified the stage 
So that worked, that tactic worked, um, f- g- g- you know, came to its fruition for the first time in stage seven into Albi, which we love, don't we, David? We love a bit we of love Albi, Albi. We love yep. Albi, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and that was exactly as you detailed there, Pete, Peter Sagan won the sprint there and he'd managed to get rid of, I think he'd got rid of Cavendish at least uh, from that selection. And um, yeah, so that, that, that worked for them then. And then, then stage eight into the Pyrenees and we talked about it last pod, didn't we? Axe. Trois domaines. Oh, by the way, going back to our obsession with the number three, mind-blowing, wasn't it? Your dossard number, Pete. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's Jesus. Just to tell the listeners what that's all about. Like, it's mad. I have no idea. I mean, it was just it's three. not about anything, is it? It's just, just three. three. And it was on the first mountain stage was at Trois domaines. Yep. It was 2013. Yep. Um, obviously, now... We do the pod together and we have commentated together for many years. And David has chapter three. Yep. I work for Trinity, which yeah. rhymes, but Trinity is free. Yeah. Uh, is that where it ends or is there more? No, no, it goes never, on and on. It, on. It never but ends. anyway, but the mad, thing, the mad thing is that your dossard number was number three. I think and I'm so, and I, all, all yeah, I'm yeah. doing now, looking at our video call, is just three, 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 three. I'm three, staring at it now because you've lined them all up behind yeah, your back as your background. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So it that was, was the first re- mountain stage. That was the first mountaintop finish in the Pyrenees, Axe Trois Domaines. Do you remember much about it, Pete? I mean, it was remember terrifying how dominant everything was. about it. Everything, everything about it. Um, I remember the running on the valley, being thinking this is so fast. I remember, and also you got to you got to remember this is the first day where I've got to do a job that I've been brought to the Tour de France for. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of pressure on me, and I've been waiting for this day. You were like last it, guy before Richie, yeah? So before, Richie would... Well, un- unintentionally, it was Geraint Thomas before me. Uh, but obviously with his injuries, yeah. he wasn't, yeah. you know, on top form. So it was, yeah, I mean, so there was, I had to sort of fill his shoes, so to speak. He was doing earlier work for, for Sky. And I just remember being, not stressed, but felt a lot of pressure. Even on the run into the climb, I remember thinking, this is like so much faster than any race I've ever done before. How the heck am I going to do my job on the climb when I already feel like I'm at my limit on the wheels, trying to hold position into into this first mountain? And um, I think it was um, Kirienka who was before me. Oh, yeah. And you always, David, you'll know this, you have that mm. battle with yourself in your mind when you're on someone's wheel and the pace is being dictated to Can you. Can you do it? Yeah. It's it's just the difference I can't even explain mm. about when you're dictating the pace and you're on the front compared to when you're second or third on the wheels and you've got a job mm. to do. The mm. mind games, even when you're on the same team as someone, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's bonkers. I mean, that's it's it's inexplicable, really. I think in in sports science terms, how you can be on a wheel of somebody and feel completely incompetent. And then mm-hmm. the moment you don't have anyone in front of you, you feel and you're in control, impregnable. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, yeah. I, so we finally, yeah. I mean, we hit Atwood, I meant, and um, Quintana attacks. Yeah, he went at early the, didn't he? at yep. the foot of the climb, pretty much. Yep. Kirianka's setting the pace um, for the for the majority of the climb, probably I don't know, half or three quarters of the way up, maybe half, and then yeah, I sort of played my games of myself the, for that for that part of the climb thinking can I do it can I not do it you know is Kirianka going to drop me finally I sort of come to terms of how I was feeling and I found myself on the front and then that's 
to try and explain what I'm talking about. As soon as as soon as as I as I was on the front, I felt amazing. It was like I'd I hadn't even ridden the 150 kilometers up to the climb, which is it's completely bonkers. It goes to show mm. how you know it's it's all up in your head. It's it's a complete mind game. Um, and then I felt great. Took it over the climb. Um, which for, you've got to remember as well, this is my first Tour de France and even I forget it and people won't know, but for that whole season, I had barely finished a race. Catalonia didn't finish, Trentino didn't finish, Romandy didn't finish. Um, I was supposed to go to Tenerife Altitude Camp because the plan was to go to the Giro, but because I literally didn't finish, and it's the year after the track, don't forget, and I had certain injuries, but because I didn't finish so many races um i i said to the to rod and the other coaches is it worth me going to tenerife and they said just go for a training camp and see how you are and i remember being on one of the rides up in tenerife with freedom and i start i was starting to feel to feel quite fit to be honest and i said to freedom wouldn't it be crazy if um i ended up going to the tour like half jokingly but in my kind of i don't know not arrogant but provocative weird yeah way that if i say it it might actually happen because you never know um and then i also and also another funny thing from this camp is i for some reason and this is what what i was talking about before i must have been feeling good i decided to just like leave everyone on one of the climbs and descended down went up another climb and felt really good on that climb and got to the top first and tim kerrison because he has his training all scheduled. Well, he had his training all scheduled out of what we have to do. And this was just a general vibe. But I actually just felt good and just wanted to go up the climb quickly. Got to the top and he was like, what are you doing there, Pete? And I was like, oh, I was just going for the king of the mountains. Like completely joking. Do you know what I mean? Because I knew it was a general ride. I knew like it doesn't matter if anyone on the group like Froome or Richie or anyone wanted to beat me, they could. And he goes, he looks at me like dead in the eye and goes, we don't do king of the mountains at Team Sky. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <God>. uh, <laughs> what have I got myself into? You know, I think that's um, the most sky. That's the most team sky thing I've ever heard. I think, yeah, <laughs> like, in that era. Um, but anyway, long, long story. Long story short, that led on to me doing the Dauphiné, and all of a sudden, I was like in a in the front group on the mountain stages with like eight people: Contador, Froome, Richie, and I was like, Jesus. Uh, Geraint Thomas was still there before his crash at the tour. And I was thinking this, actually after everything that's gone on this year, there's a fair chance I could go to this year's tour. And I literally <laughs> couldn't believe it, you know? Um, and then, yeah, I got the call off. So then basically it all came round to this first mountain stage where it was like, you've been selected off, you know, basically half a training camp in one race and you've got to, you know, deliver the goods now. So I think that's what was playing on my mind when I was on Kirianka's wheel, and those are the negative thoughts because of everything that had, everything that came before, before that. So um, yeah, once I hit the front and got in control, and fortunately was on a good day. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. And what we talked about in two thousand and three, on last year's on last week's pod, sorry, um, it was all the nostalgia and emotions and dreams that I had at that age as a young kid i was that person and it's, it was mind-blowing for me couldn't believe it super brilliant cool. 
I think I, I think what you've just described and that you know sitting on Kirienka's wheel and then getting to the front. I think it's a bit like going to the dentist, isn't it? Like the worst bit is <laughs> the worst bit is in the waiting <laughs> room. <laughs> the it's in the waiting. Room, yeah. It's in the it's in the waiting room, isn't it? Waiting for the, the call, and then when you get it, and then finally when the drill gets in your mouth and it starts to work, you kind of go, "All right, okay, well, I get it." But now, like, it's horrible. But it's there's an end to this, and and it kind of you're not in control, but it's like. It's the fi- it's the final bit, isn't it? So it's the anticipation of the final bit as well. But anyway, um, so that but the time gaps on GC at the end of that first mountain stage, which is ridiculous. Um, Froome's nearest Froome won the stage. His nearest um, competitor on GC was actually at this point Alejandro Valverde, and he, he was already one minute and twenty five down. Uh, <laughs> Contador was 151 down and Nairo Quintana was already over two minutes down on Chris Froome after eight stages. It was, um, and by the way, just a little footnote, of all Chris Froome's four victories, his first one in 2013 was the biggest winning margin. He Hmm. won it in the end by four minutes and 20 seconds. Um, Two years later, it was one minute and 12, um, four minutes and five seconds in 2016 and then only 54 seconds in his final year in 2017 so it was a it was a looking back at the highlights like I have done today Froome was on an absolute mission in this race and I, I spoke to him just a, a few days ago to, I did a long interview with him for another project I'm working with on and I um I spoke to him actually about the 2011 Vuelta that eventually was handed to him but that he still believes and for very good reasons that he would have won and should have won had he not been riding for Bradley Wiggins. I mean, I think that's kind of not even controversial. I think that was, that was with the benefit of hindsight, very obvious. And he would have won it quite comfortably, actually. Um, and But it's amazing to talk to him now, even now in 2023, and his, his he can't quite help but stir, rake over the coals of how much he resented having sacrificed the 2011 tour at uh, Vuelta and being boxed out of the 2012 contractually Tour de France and everything kind of exploded into life didn't it at the 2013 Tour de France he was in peak form and he really meant it and he just took every opportunity to make his point to everyone and to himself it was a it's actually quite looking at like we'll come to the Mont Ventoux stage but looking at some of his attacks on the mountains they're terrifying they're terrifying like it makes Pogacar look kind of normal you know i mean it's like it's just mm. he was he was frightening wasn't he frightening he just he had a he had a chip on his shoulder didn't he he had something to prove that from the 2011 vuelta to the 2012 tour de france it it wasn't just in his head the kind of public domain held that he he'd been robbed to a certain degree or the tactics had been wrong and they'd chosen the wrong man uh, and and that's no disrespect to to Bradley, because the re- reason he won stuff was because he was able to make himself the chosen man. But yeah, I think yeah. Chris Froome came in there to really just go, you know what? I am better than everybody. And there's... there's Stars aligned. Yeah, with, no gifts. You know, the motivation, the, mm. his, the, like you talked about Ned, his peak form. I think that was... You can easily say that was the peak of his Tour de France reign, wasn't it? Mm. You never see seen him attack truly like he did on those mountain stages when just, no one it, it's just hor- it's just horrifying um it was in the saddle cadence 30 second burst wasn't it that were just mm. you seen them after that tour you did see them again but they were less frequent mm. yeah yeah do you know what guys we've been talking for so long that i've made an editorial decision about this podcast 
that we're gonna we're gonna do another part on this. We're gonna we're gonna I pause. agree with that. We're gonna pause the 2013 yeah. Tour de France. We're gonna do another one in a few days or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. we're going to kind of, because otherwise it's just going to get too long. But before we do that, let's close the first half of our 2013 Tour de France by talking about stage nine, Pete. Stage nine. And it was, um, it was, it was the Ryder Hegedal incident. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We've spoken about it before, but remind, remind listeners what, what goes on here. So, th- I mean, this incident was the start of a complete and it was the the it, the rest day was the following day was it yeah that's right and um it was just completely crazy wasn't it the the first 10 kilometers 20 kilometers the crash happened quite early on but the tacks were just they just kept on coming it was like it felt like the whole peloton was against team sky oh, I, and no you know, one and you know, wanted you know to who, race to settle you know who did it, Pete, as well, who was like one of the biggest like fire starters right at the beginning? It was me and Garmin and me and Jack Bauer. So we just went off before that first climb <laughs> and I refused. I was on a full, basically a kamikaze mission because well, I had my issues with the, you guys. The dangerous, po- the dangerous like stages in the Tour de France for GC teams are where the climbs are... They're not, they're not like, you know, whole category or first category climbs. It's when it's in the valley, it's rolling, it's left and right. It's third category climbs where, you know, a large portion of the peloton, probably 80, 90% of the peloton can race. And that's when it's so hard mm. to control. And I think in the first part of the stage, everyone knew that. And that's where they had yeah. to, you know, really capitalize on it and try and expose, not Chris Froome, but the team. G had his pelvis problems. We had Stanard, who was strong as an ox, but not a climber. And it, it did, it, I mean, my crash was just the, the start of it, but it did, it massively fell apart on that stage. And so from what you're talking about, Ned, it, it was the first moment where you could, I mean, back in the day, David, when a team mm. spreads across the road, that would have been it, wouldn't it? Yeah, that didn't happen that day. Yeah. No, it, it definitely didn't. Um, so, and at my first Tour de France, and we forgot about the. St- oh no, maybe it was after it. There was a crosswind stage. Yeah. Where stu- was that it before? No, no, no. That fin- that was that was that's going to be in part two. Yeah, it's going to be part two right, in the part next part. Two. I won't, we'll come I won't to touch that. on but, that then. But it's so interesting. Anyway, Actually, anyway Ned. Talk- yeah, go on, go on, go on, Pete. Sorry, on. we. I just to finish this story about me mm. and the, yeah. the crash, and um, we'd spread across the road as a team and thinking this is it it's done and you just completely relax don't you on your bike at that point yeah yeah so you've got no i mean and i just completely i was so relaxed on the left hand side of the road all of a sudden rider comes up twice the speed of me and i don't think me or him either realized what happened but I ended up just basically, he, he literally just clipped me because I was so relaxed. It's not like a bunch sprint where you're expecting people to come up your left or come up your right. I was so relaxed on the bike that he must have literally just tapped my brake lever. And I just completely got wiped out. Um, <laughs> and yeah, heroically fell down into this gauze and whatever was down there. And it, I can remember... I. And I, I talked about the Tour de France, this Tour de France, remembering it so vividly. 
and I can every pretty much every stage and every moment. And it's the one time in that Tour de France where I remember I, f- I finally stopped rolling down into this ravine and I lay there and the first thought that came into my head was, I might just stay here for another five minutes. It was stay so down. <laughs> stay like, down. I, I didn't I didn't move. I was like it was like peace. It was like and I, and mm. and this felt like two, three minutes, but in reality it was probably one second, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because um, the camera the camera picks you up and you from the helicopter and you're scrambling up the side of the ditch. And uh and and, and you've put what's quite comical about it peter is your helmet is kind of like three quarters off your head isn't it sort of primus roglic style but to the yeah. side as well so and it's, it's all over the place it's completely cracked down the middle yeah to the right and yeah. also the team car and no one on my team knew how i had crashed that's how crazy huh. it was so the first team car had already gone by um and i was like i've crashed i've crashed and they were like what what <laughs> so wait for the second team car and um they didn't have a helmet for me. And oh, my helmet, what? I could literally, it was, I could take it apart, you know? It was that, it was that cracked. Um, so then I rode up to the first team car, which hadn't, they, they knew I'd crashed at this point, but, and then swapped my helmet because I didn't have one in the second car, yeah. And since then, <laughs> Pete's been fine. well let's let's discover just how fine pete was at the end of the stage when he spoke to me at itv and gave this very short but very 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 sweet little quote about what it's like this is on a complete different level it's like nothing i've ever experienced before um so there's that pete uh but but david Going back to something you said earlier about the beginning of that stage where you were on the front and your team mm. were ripping it up. So that's really interesting you said that because that gets mentioned in the little soundbite we're about to hear that was sent to us this afternoon by your teammate, Dan Martin. Mm. Because Dan won the stage and he, he out-sprinted Jakob Fulsang to take the stage as well. As, but his contention is that it was always... That stage, Banya de Bigor is where it finished. It was always that stage that your team had highlighted for the first kind of major opportunity for a stage win. And that the tactic was all about getting down in the break, which yeah. didn't actually happen. It didn't no. actually ha- happen in the end, but yeah. uh, it turned out differently. But let's, let's, hear what, let's hear what Dan has to say anyway. Right, so yeah, stage nine of the Tour de France 2013. Uh, we'd earmarked that stage from the very, well, before the race even started as the one to aim for, uh, as the one most likely to be won by a breakaway and in fact it wasn't won by a breakaway which was uh, the analysis was wrong but we still we went in a full team effort and uh, i'm sure david i'm not sure if david's completely blanked out at this stage pete has maybe as well um but yeah it was uh we were attacking as a team from the gun in ideally to set myself up going in the breakaway and then uh, winning from the break but in the end it uh, it came down to an attack on the last climb hawke on Suzanne and yeah, managed to managed to finish it off in a sprint against Fulslang. But I think my most outstanding memory of that day was after all the press conference and the podium procedures and all that. I uh, was walking towards anti-doping, and David was just about to cross the finish line. We just crossed the finish line, and him and Jack Bauer had no idea that I'd actually won. And the look on their faces when they saw me behind the gantry with the flowers. Um, yeah, I uh, I don't think I'll ever look, see that. Well, 
I don't think I'll ever forget that look. It was uh, one of complete astonishment that I actually managed to pull it off. And uh, yeah, quite, quite satisfying. And yeah, it was um, a special day for sure. So there we go. So we're going to have to pick this up. So we get to the first rest day and we're going to have to pause. We're going to have a rest. Pick it up in a few. 2013 we'll rest. Never strays far. Rest day. Rest. I like it. That's interesting. I didn't think I didn't think we'd have this much to say about this edition of the race, but clearly we've got absolutely loads to say about it. Or Pete has. It's nice to have your recollection so fresh, Pete. Yeah, he's back in the yep. game. Yeah. And there may be, Pete, there may be a little competition, giveaway, sort of prize thing that we might be able to sort out by the time we next pod, right? Yeah, we'll keep it under wraps. For now. Yeah. There's a few gifts that, or gifts, I wouldn't say, competition prizes that you can see behind me. That no yeah. One else can see. Yeah. Very Ooh, exciting. I just want to say, I just want to say that to the listeners of this podcast, we have a small number of initialed and numbered 2022 roadbooks still available uh, that were um, on sale before Christmas at a discounted rate just for you guys. And if you go to the roadbook.co.uk and enter the code SPRING23, then you'll get the uh, the relevant discount. So go and grab that and um, we'll, uh, we'll pick it up because the Tour de France is about to do the most ridiculous rest day transfer that I will never forget for as long as I live. We're in Bagnier de Bigorre one minute, and the next minute, we're in bloody Brittany. 